Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Not much um, juicy gossip in this uh, juicy crack, but it's something that I just felt compelled to talk about because of what's been in the news. Um, You must have heard or read about the fact that um, this last couple of weeks, a 32-year-old mother in America, Lindsay Clancy, I think she's called, has murdered three of her children. Three. She had three. She's murdered them. One, the little boy, um, looked like he might survive, but sadly, he's lost his life. Now, this is, to any of us, let alone mothers, completely and utterly incomprehensible. We all know the love we have for our, for our children, and nothing can um, break that bond. However, it has been disclosed that Lindsay was suffering from severe postnatal or postpartum, which for some reason a couple of the newspapers have started calling it. It's postnatal depression. But in fact, more than that, it's what we know as a puerperal psychosis. Now, I've talked openly and at length um, for 30 odd years about the fact that I suffer from clinical depression, or as it's now known, again, don't know why the name's changed, as major depressive disorder. I have tried to be someone who says, look, I'm living with this illness like some people live with a physical illness. I have medication and I now have HRT. 33 years ago, I gave birth to my eldest son, Matty, who obviously I talk a lot about. He's my eldest child, love the bones of him, um, and he's doing incredibly well in his um, career. And I then have Louis, who is 12 years younger, and... Um, Louis um, is 21 going on 22. So there's a reason why there is a gap of 12 years, Um, both to their dad, Tim, um, because some people query was, you know, people who don't know me or know my story, was it the same dad? Because often with a 12-year gap, it wasn't, but it was. The origin of my illness was postnatal depression. So I met my then husband, Tim, and I was sort of 30-ish. He was 36-ish, 37. And um, we got together. And much as we both realized early on that we both, you know, really wanted children, we hadn't been together that long. So we certainly hadn't um, thought this through, but I got pregnant. And when I did, even though it was only six months into our relationship, I was over the moon. I decided not to tell anyone for a while because, you know, we, um, A, we didn't have the forums and the platforms to talk about such things publicly. But even with family, I was going to keep it quiet for three months, as you do. No, Tim went into work the next day. Um, on a series um, that he was doing at the time. And um, and anyway, he told it, 
his best mate and then the news got out and everything. Anyway, it was joyous, as was my pregnancy. We were two people who were in a good relationship. We had great families who were all excited for the child. We both were having a much-wanted child. The pregnancy was going swimmingly. Um, we had some money in the bank and, and everything was just heading for this amazingly exciting time. So there were no social circumstances that we had to be worried about because a lot of people think that that's what causes it. Um, although there are many reasons. Anyway, um, I had what would be known as I was a blooming woman in pregnancy. My skin was great. My hair was great. I was so happy. Um, I I just loved my pregnancy and there were no problems with it. A couple of minor infections that were cleared up. But what did happen was I was having him in a national health hospital because that's where I wanted to have him. However, the hospital I was in was a disaster and I was so upset. I was treated four times for what turned out to be the same condition because the notes hadn't been passed around. It was just, it was, we know what the NHS is like now, but in this particular hospital, it was like that then. It was a disaster. So I was was so mortified and upset we decided to go privately and I had him at a hospital in Hendon a private hospital which I hadn't realized was a national childbirth hospital um, I just went because it had been recommended to me to someone who had been there for something else not related to childbirth so <laughs> I remember in the prenatal classes when they were talking about natural childbirth and I was saying um yeah, okay, that all sounds great. But, you know, if I'm in absolute agony, um, you will give me something, won't you? Oh, Mrs. Healy, as I was at the time. Mrs. Healy, oh, we're not in the Victorian days. Of course, there'll be something for you. Fast forward to please hit me over the head with a spiked mallet. Um, and I had a no pain relief um, birth, which took 42 hours. If you know my son, Matty, nothing's changed. Nevertheless... He was nine days late. I didn't even care. I love my pregnancy so much. And much as it was an incredibly long, arduous, painful labor, I didn't know anything else. So out popped this, um, this beautiful, bouncing baby boy. Um, I didn't know I was having a boy because there wasn't the tests to really tell in those days. And I, I, I'm not sure if I would have found out. But anyway, um, he was nearly eight pounds and it was just the most joyous occasion. And um, I just couldn't wait to uh, tell, my, tell my parents. I'd always looked forward to that day. I remember my dad being shocked it wasn't a girl because he had two girls. He just didn't consider it wouldn't be a girl. So that was just a, a wonderful time. Anyway. Um, I was very calm and um, I was trying to breastfeed. You know, I'd been told that um, this was the best way forward and I was very, very happy to breastfeed. And I remember it was um, not working out very well. He was very hungry and he wouldn't sort of latch on. And it was, it was quite stressful. But when he did latch on, I felt that he was getting enough and um, but he did, he did cry a lot. But the nurses, I remember at the time saying to me, oh, you know, Mrs. Healy, you're, um, you're the only mum. I think there was about eight mums in there at the time. You're the only mum that's not pulling the anxiety cord, you know. Oh, look what's happening. I was really, I was really quite calm. Um, and I felt okay. So he was born on the Saturday morning. And on the Wednesday, it was time to take him home. And so what we got and got him dressed and everything. And this hospital was in Hendon and we lived in um, Highgate or Posh Crouch End. And I'd lived there for like 10 years. So we were taking him back to the flat that we had then with the idea of moving up to the Northeast because I got this homing instinct when I was pregnant. So we'd bought a place in the Northeast and this was, you know, all of our, all of our plans. So, um, we left the hospital. He had all his checks and he was totally fine, as was I. And as we, um, as we drove out of the hospital, driving through Finchley, which is an area that, you know, like I say, I'd lived near there for many, many years, I was kind of overwhelmed by this feeling of, I can only call it maybe detachment, where it just seemed like, I don't know, it was weird. 
like I was slightly detached from what was going on. But I didn't, it didn't make me anxious because I, th I thought, you know, I've, well, I've had a baby, things are going to be different. You know, I arrived at this hospital without a baby and I'm leaving with a baby. So things are going to be slightly different. So it didn't cause me too much concern. Anyway, we got home. And so this is like five days after I'd had him. And the house, the flat, of course, was full of flowers and plants and, and, and a million cards from people. And I was opening them and they were all just full of these amazing good wishes. And I was bursting into tears. I was just so emotional with every card that came. And um, I remember thinking, I just felt really sort of like, I don't know, emotional. It's it's hard to put my finger on it, but I just felt a bit sort of sad in a way, maybe mourning something that a life that never, that, that was no longer going to be there, but I was so in love with my child. So Tim and I put my overly emotional state down to and the baby blues. I'd read about the baby blues in the four million magazines I'd bought a week, um, which of course featured a, a mother and her baby smiling gleefully, you know, pages of pages of mothers just smiling and everything's dandy. And, and I thought, oh, this is the baby blues. This is the baby blues. It'll be okay. Anyway, he wasn't sleeping very well. I'm still trying to breastfeed. Um, I couldn't understand why he was crying all the time, but we got a few hours sleep. And the next day, my mum and dad were coming down from the northeast and mum had, they'd both taken a few days off work and they were coming down. And, um, and I remember I'd look forward to this day since I was 16 of my parents seeing my baby. And when they arrived, I just remember thinking, I don't this doesn't feel right. I don't feel as as joyful and excited that, as I wanted to feel. It was weird. But, you know, I went through the motions and I remember my mum saying to me, I had no idea how this would make me feel. She said, I always knew that I'd love my grandchild. You know, of course, I'd, I, I always knew I'd love my grandchild because it's your child. She said, but this overwhelming feeling of love is just blindsided me. So that was an incredible thing to hear. But it didn't affect me in the way that normally something like that would affect me. I said, oh, mum, that's so wonderful to hear. Oh, my God, you know. I was a bit sort of not dead inside, but something wasn't right. Anyway, I just kept putting all this down to the new mum thing. That night, I went to bed. I hardly slept. I maybe got a couple of hours. And when I woke up, I was in the middle of my first ever panic attack. It was unbelievably frightening because I'd never had one before. And bearing in mind, I wasn't an anxious mom. So there was nothing about this situation that was making me feel anxious. I felt odd, but not anxious. So to wake up in the midst of this terrifying panic attack, I can only describe it as, you know, when you're driving along and you nearly have an accident or someone cuts you up and your heart is racing and you swerve to the side and you pull over and you stop and um, the, the danger is over. You haven't crashed, you're alive and you pull over and it's like, oh my fucking, oh my God, oh but gradually, the terror that you felt and the anxiety and the heart racing and the sweating of this near-miss accident goes away because it didn't happen. And you eventually get yourself together and on you go. And it's just another story to tell. That was like that level of panic happening, but never going away. And I had no idea what was causing it. But every time Matty would go, it would start again, racing, racing, racing. Anyway, the community midwife was coming round and I'd had a different variety of midwives, but this community midwife who I'd never met before, bearing in mind, I had no relationship with this person. So um, she had uh, come round and my mum said, um, look, look what's happened. And what had happened was I had gone to bed with full breastfeeding boobs full 
huge boobs to feed my child. When I had looked down at them after the panic attack, my boobs were empty. The whole lactation process had stopped and I had these spaniel's ears boobs where the night before had been full of milk. And I remember just looking down at them and going, what's happened, mum? And she said, I don't know, but don't worry. She was brilliant, my mum, as were all my family. I don't know, don't worry. We'll mention it to the midwife. And when we told the midwife, she said, oh, well, that is um, very strange, very unusual. Of course, the last thing you want to hear when you've just had a baby, or in fact, when you're ill or anything is, that's very unusual. She said, that's very unusual. That cessation of the lactation period normally happens if there's a death. If the baby, the spouse or a parent has died, that can often induce that much stress. Well, you can imagine what that did to my head. She said, but you're just going to have to go out and get bottles. Well, bearing in mind, I'd, I'd been at a natural childbirth hospital, which kind of made you feel a complete failure if you were going to bottle feed. So that didn't help. Anyway, mum said, mum was great. And she went, Denise, let's go and get the bottles. She said, it doesn't matter. You know, the formulas these days are a million times better than they were back in the day when I had you. So loads of babies are bottle fed. You've tried. Something's happened. It's not worked. But let's just go and get them. So I remember... I can't remember who went and got the bottles, but we got the bottles and we had the Milton sterilizer and setting it all up and everything. And um, and I fed Matthew, again, feeling this lack of sort of weirdness. And um, again, couldn't put my finger on it. I was functioning and I fed the baby and he slept brilliantly. So clearly he hadn't been getting enough milk for whatever reason. Well, we know what the reasons were. But, but anyway, he hadn't been getting enough milk and he slept. And... I didn't. Every time he went, mm, I would wake up in a sweat with my anxiety, like crippling. It was crippling anxiety. And when we got up the next day, mum said, I think we should try and go for a walk. We'll get some fresh air. My dad and Tim were going out to play golf and I was saying, I'll be fine, I'll be fine, I'll be fine, I've got mum, I'll be fine. And we walked probably a mile down into Crouch End. Bearing in mind, Crouch End is somewhere where I've lived for 10 years. I know it really, really well. It's my home, somewhere I'd gone to drama school and I'd always lived around that part of North London. When I met Timmy, lived in Highgate, so we moved there and it was all, it was all fine. So it was a very familiar area to me. And we sat in this cafe with the baby and I said to mum, I just feel really weird, mum. I feel as though I'm in a dream sequence, as if I'm outside looking in, as if I know where I am, but I kind of don't. Everything is weird. And mum, who was a nurse in a psychiatric hospital for what we used to call the mentally handicapped, really high-grade people who had been institutionalized for years and years and years, who had been born with um, with the, those, um, mostly who had been born with those conditions. And um, mum said to me, you're not depressed, are you? And I said, no, I don't feel depressed. I just feel really weird. I mean, I understand now. I didn't know what depression felt like. I'd use the word depression like people use it to this day, but maybe less so. You know, oh, I didn't get a job. I feel really depressed. The weather's absolutely bleak and I've got no money. I feel really depressed. Mum and somebody isn't well. Oh my God, I feel so depressed. You know, it's very common. It's a bit like people say, oh, I've got OCD when they want the tins turned right in the cupboard. It doesn't mean it's offensive to people with proper OCD, but it's just something that, that, you know, people have to be aware of what a serious condition that, that is, but it's all a learning process. Anyway, we decided to walk back to the flat and on the way back, this was um, April the 15th, 1989. And I said to mum, we need to get some milk. So I popped into a shop and mum stayed outside with Matty. And, um, and on the radio in the shop, I heard about the Hillsborough disaster. 
I heard that 96 people had been killed in this crush and it was just terrible. And I came out and I said to mum, oh my God, mummy, you won't believe what's happened. There's been this disaster at Hillsborough. 96 people have been killed. And we were going, oh my God, can you imagine? Oh my God, what's happened? We must find out more. By the time we got home, half a mile away, and I can remember saying this lucidly to my mum. My mum said, so how do you... I don't know what the question was per se, but she asked me something about the disaster. And I and I remember saying it. Mum, that was a dream. And she said, no, darling, you've just come out the shop and told me that you heard it on the radio. And I went, no, I didn't. I told you that I dreamt it. And mum thought, oh, God. We got into the flat and I remember two of my friends were there, two... Um, gay friends of mine, um, one who's since um, died and one who's still a friend. And um, they had come round because (laughs) Lester used to joke with me that the sort of woman I was and the sort of pregnancy that I'd had, you know, that I'd basically have the baby and two days later used to say, someone will come round to deliver the yellow pages and you'll go, oh, fancy looking after the baby for a couple of hours, I'm going out. And I used to say, oh, you cheeky bugger. Um, But that's how it was perceived that I would be so carefree when I had a baby. And I just remember thinking, I don't want them to be here. I want them to go. Something really, really terrible is happening to me. And Lester kept saying, are you all right? And I said, no, I'm not, Lester. And so what I did, I said, I feel really sick. And and, and mum said, I think she's going to have to lie down, guys. And they were going, oh, God, you're so boring. You're so boring. And I was trying to smile because that's my relationship that I had with Lester. And I was trying to smile and... um, and Paul Lester's partner at the time was saying, oh, come on, mate, we should go and everything. Anyway, they they did go and, you know, I did the obligatory hugs and they saw the baby and made the right noises. And I just remember thinking, I want you to go. And from then on, everything is very blurry. My mum said she left me in the lounge. It was sort of a lounge with a great big long... 30-foot sort of long lounge, fabulous flat in Highgate with a kitchen up at the top end. And mum said that she had gone out. Tim and dad were still out. She'd gone into the bedroom and when she came back, I was on the windowsill, trying to climb onto the windowsill. Now, I've told this story before and some of the media picked it up as, oh, Denise tried to kill herself. That wasn't the case at all. I didn't. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know why I was there. And everything went in and out of this place where I knew what was happening and where I didn't and I remember mum sitting me down on the sofa and all I can describe it as this black evil blanket started at my feet I got a really tinny metallic taste in my mouth that has heralded every attack since and a metallic taste in my mouth and a tingling in my palms to the point that I could hardly move them And this blackness crept up me and I was catatonic with depression. I could hardly function. I sat in the corner of the sofa like woman in a dressing gown, not able to speak. Sorry. I still, uh, I still get upset by it because it was so terrifying, more terrifying than any physical illness that somebody can say to you, that's what you've got. Because even in the blackness, I knew that nobody could see this. And I am so incredibly lucky to this day, sorry, I'm so incredibly lucky that nobody in my family, my mum, my dad, my sister, my then husband, ever, ever, ever doubted that what I had was a serious illness. But subsequently, as we moved forward, you realise that you're only supposed to be depressed for a while. And then it's a case of, well, just buy her a dress and take her to the Trafford Centre. It was the Metro Centre at the time when I moved to the North East. But um, anyway... So my dad and my husband had gone out to play golf and came in to find medics around my bed. And 
I was um, I was hospitalised, and um, I was I had severe postnatal depression, borderline puerperal psychosis. Now, I didn't have a full-blown puerperal psychosis, but I know people who did. A friend of mine, Laura Dockrell, wrote a book called What Have I Done about her psychosis. Um, and um, basically, in psychosis, you lose all sense of reality. I have talked to thousands, I would say, certainly hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women over the last 33 years who've had mild, moderate, severe postnatal depression and purple psychosis. Purple psychosis, I've known mothers put their child in the microwave. I've known mothers be found trying to put their child in the oven. Mothers who have had no religion in their lives become hell-bent on this child being satanic. They cover them in crucifixes and crosses. They lose their proverbial mind and they haven't got a fucking clue what is happening to them. And I've known certainly hormone doctors try for years to prove that this is some kind of hormonal thing that happens in some mothers and how serious it is. And for years, nobody took it seriously. So going back to my own personal experience, people say to me, how long did you have postnatal depression? And I say 33 years. <laughs> because, and I, and I want to say this here to anybody listening who is planning a family or is pregnant this is so that you have information because most of you won't have it. But if you do, there are now so many places where you can get help. When I had it, there was nowhere. There was, in all of the literature, in the magazines that you bought, it was all about, if this physically happens to your child, go to the, you know, the association for babies born with eight noses or, or whatever. I'm being flippant, but I'm just trying to make a point of, there were loads of things where if something physically was wrong with your baby, there were places to go to. There wasn't. It would literally say in three or four sentences in the corner of a page, um, if you think that your suffering is greater than the baby blue, see your GP. Okay, so that's what we did. My mum took me to see my GP, who I hasten to add had never seen before. She was in Crouch End. And for whatever reason, we got a taxi down there. I I didn't drive at the time, and or did I? I did drive. I didn't have a car. I can't remember what the practicalities of it were, but I wouldn't have been in a position to drive. So we got a taxi. The guys must have been out somewhere. And um, bearing in mind, Tim was doing two jobs at the time. So he was doing casualty in Bristol and Boone, for those of you old enough, in, in um, Birmingham. So he was trying to be, he was being driven through the night while having this wife on the phone screaming, going, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. And I went to the doctor with mum. And on the way, I tried to open the taxi door. I was trying to stop the pain. I don't know what I would have done. My mum dragged me in. We got to the doctor. And I can remember... I was trying to talk and finding it really difficult. And my mum was talking for me. And the, the doctor, probably a woman of about my age now, leant forward, looked me in the eyes and went, well, I had five children, dear, and I just didn't have time to get depressed. My mum said if she ever met her on a dark alley, God knows. I mean, but unfortunately... That was the mentality of a lot of people. And the interesting th thing is this. The most non-understanding, is that a word? The people that were much more flippant about my illness and 
not prepared to give it much credence were people of my grandmother's generation. Because there was very much a, well, we just had to get on with it, you know, and you've got your washing machines and your, 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 your washers. We had the mangle and we had the three children, right? But then you'd say, Granny, what happened to, I don't know, what happened to Auntie Vera? Oh, she went a bit funny after the birth. And my mum told me that in the hospital where she worked with high-grade patients, there would have been women in there admitted with undiagnosed postnatal depression and undiagnosed menopause symptoms, untreated, and have just then become institutionalised. So it was easy to say you just had to get on. Yeah, you did. I would have been the person to get on. I've got on most of my life, but I was seriously, seriously ill. And believe you me, depression, postnatal depression, whatever the origin of it, is as terminal an illness as, as many others. Because the one solace you have is in that you could take your own life. And that may sound very dramatic, but people who take their own life with depression very rarely want to kill themselves. They want to stop the pain. They want anything to stop the pain. And sometimes that's the only thing. I was incredibly lucky that I had a family that supported me through my illness and did do for all of the years. And my mum and dad did. And my then husband did, and he's still a friend of mine now. And I'm so lucky that my beloved husband, Lincoln, who'd never witnessed depression in his life, has been so incredible with my illness because it's bloody tough for those who live with people with depression. I'm also amazingly thrilled to say again, I've said on other podcasts that for whatever reason, I haven't had an episode for three years and it's making my 60s one of the best times, even when I'm fed up and I'm, you know, the normal stresses get to you. I'm not living with depression at the moment and it's brilliant. But um, it, it was a long time before I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. And if I'd not had the family I had, I don't know where I would have been. I never, ever, ever wanted to harm my child. But I lost the ability to love because depression is not sadness. It, it is always described as sadness, an innate sadness that won't go away. It's not. But it's, I guess the people writing that often haven't had it because it's really hard to describe. It's an inability to feel anything. So I knew the love I had for my family I knew the immediate love I had for my child. It was taken away from me. And I used to sit on the end of the sofa and all I wanted was for somebody to come and give me an injection and to make everything go away. But my mum knew the importance of the physical contact. And she, every four hours, would make me go and do the bottles and feed Matthew. Now, when I tell you this, I mentioned earlier that our kitchen diner thing was 30 feet long. When I looked up from the sofa to where the bottles were in the Milton sterilizer, it was like somebody had said to me, there's Mount Everest, go and climb it now. That's what it was like. And I would haul myself up. For years, I couldn't smell the Milton without having an anxiety attack. For years, I couldn't smell Ivoire by Balmain, the perfume that my mum had, because she'd only planned to come for a few days, but had to take weeks off work, unpaid time off work to be with me. And as it was the only perfume she'd bought, if I ever walked past anybody wearing it, my heart used to start to race because that was the smell that I associated with that time. I mean, we've all had instances where smells are so evocative of, you know, the same thing happens with incredibly happy childhood things. I'll smell something and think, oh my God, that reminds me of my childhood. Um, so, you know, it can obviously work both ways. But um, so my mum would make me go and do the bottles. And I'd say, will you do them? will you do them, mum? He said, no, just go and do the bottles and he can come and sit back down. And I would lift the baby up and I would feed him. And it was by numbers. But what mum knew was that I needed to keep up the physical bond between me and my son. And it was incredible that she knew to do that. So years later, when I told Matthew this, 
I told him how I used to lie down about to ask the universe or I've never been religious, but ask the universe or anything to help me love my child again. And he wrote this song called She Lays Down, which is on one of his albums. I can't remember which one, which, which one. And it's called She Lays Down. And it's about me telling him what I, what I did to feel and to try and love him again. And I mean, anyone who knows me or knows anything about me knows that the bond I have with my children is the love we have for each other is just insurmountable and um you know but I I thank my mother for seeing that I needed to keep the physical bond up anyway time went on and I moved back to the northeast we moved to this beautiful house in the northeast which again was very hard for me because I didn't I was in different surroundings and Tim I mean I have to laugh at this because in Boone he was playing a really dodgy comedian, a really seedy sort of club comic. And he'd had to grow a tash, which was a bit like a handlebar tash. And he had to talk to me with his hand covering his face, because I'm, I'm doing the actions now, with his hand covering his face, because every time he took his hand away, I would go, and I can remember doing it. Why do you look so different? Why is everything changing around me? Everything looks different. It's changing. And it was all part of this disassociated side of the illness. Anyway... About about 18 months later, I was on medication and I, I had started to have glimpses of what my life outside depression would be. And I was working. And can you believe, I'd wanted to do telly for years, but I was predominantly a theatre actress, well, pretty exclusively, for the first 10 years of my career, with odd little tiny scenes here and there and things, but nothing to write home about. And then I got Spender and Biker Grove at the same time. And I was working on these jobs and, um, you know, living with depression, having some really good days with some bad days, really good days and some bad days, working through them. And um, the Evening Chronicle, my local paper, who, you know how your paper, or your, lo your local paper from where you're from, always sort of supports you. And, and they did from the day I'd gone to drama school. And they wanted to do a story with me about um, having a baby and what life was like and working on these shows. And I talked to them about my postnatal depression and uh, I told my my family and they you know said yeah of course you know and I just said I just need to talk about it because if it can happen to me it can happen to anybody but I remember talking to my agent at the time who was about 120 years old and I remember purely out of concern for me him saying um oh darling you can't possibly talk about that no 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 people will think you're completely and utterly mad now I do apologize if in other podcasts there may be snippets of this I've talked about before because I know I have talked about my depression but I'm trying to put it all in the context of um of of the postnatal depression as a sort of a separate separate unit and I said to him Dennis Honestly, if this can happen to me, the person, you know, that was never going to have anything like this, then it can happen to anybody and I'm going to talk about it. So this local piece came out and very quickly, I don't remember the magazine, but it was Woman or Woman's Own, I think. And they came to me and said, could we do an article about your depression? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I did. And I very quickly realized that in this country... I was the only person at that time on television of any kind talking about this illness. And I would go, I was asked to go on shows like The Time, The Place and Kilroy Silk and all those morning shows that many of you, if you're young, won't remember, but they were sort of the this mornings of the day, but they were more like audience debate shows. Um, they were Jeremy Kyle without 
all of the horribleness. They they would, you know, on a variety of topics where the audience would have to participate as well. And I can remember on one of those shows, there was um, psychologists on and they were saying, well, we would have been able to tell if you were going to be prone to postnatal depression because we can sort of, and I said, with all the greatest of respect for your career, the absolute greatest of respect for the wonderful work you do, you couldn't have. You absolutely could not have. I'd had nothing in my childhood because, dear God, the psychiatrist they sent me to tried to pin things down to my childhood. And actually, I can understand where false memory syndrome comes from because they really tried to pinpoint it on something. And I had a very happy childhood. I just did. You know, my mom and dad gave Debbie and I a great childhood. Um, did they argue? Yeah, sometimes they screamed at each other like cat and dog. You know, it wasn't perfect. We didn't have loads of money. We had Welsh's toffees. So, of course, everyone thought that we were made of money because we had this title of Welsh's toffees. But actually, my poor old dad had sold his shares in the company years before to try and keep his family. And, you know, it, we really didn't. But, um, but anyway, we weren't on the breadline at all. I'm not trying to do the old, you know, kicking a tin can down a dark alleyway. We weren't like that at all. But my parents had to work for every single penny. In fact, my mum then, you know, ultimately did have, uh, have, to, have to go back to work when times got tough. But nevertheless, my, the, mine and Debbie's memories are of a wonderful childhood. And all of the kids in, used to come to us. You know, we had a great childhood. So there was nothing to pin it on then. Um, and I just knew that when my illness started, something physical happened in me. And every time subsequently over 30 years, an episode was coming, it was endogenous, meaning it wasn't reactive to something. I would be in the middle of, of, a, of a play it happened. I'd be in the middle of a conversation. I'd be in the middle of a happy time on holiday. And I would feel the tingling in the palms and the metallic taste in the mouth. And I knew within 30 seconds something was going to come on. It took me 20 years of this 33 in order to have anybody take my illness as something that could have had a hormonal origin. As women, we give birth to a human being through our fufu. We make another human in our tummies. Can you imagine the hormones going on in there? And with some women, the chemical chaos is too great. Now, when I had Matthew, there was this woman called Dr. Katerina Dalton, and she was big in the world of trying to prove that this was because of a deficiency in progesterone. And I went along with that for a long time. She actually got this girl out of jail. I think the book was called Tightrope. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was. This woman had killed her mother. And what it had been was she'd done it within a purple psychosis. But what I then discovered 20 years ago, it was, it was a, an absolute lack of estrogen. And when I eventually found this professor, Professor John Studd on Wimpole Street, and he said to me when he did my estrogen tests, I have never known anybody be so deficient in estrogen, and we are going to start treating you with this. I started to get better. It wasn't a cure-all. It wasn't a cure-all because my body had got used to producing the cortisol and all the chemical stuff that goes with it. But he said he couldn't, he couldn't believe how I'd survived with the amount of estrogen that I had lacking. And so a combination of antidepressants and hormones. But three years ago, when I had a really, 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 really bad episode, which actually spawned my book, The Unwelcome Visitor, I haven't had another episode since. But I have an unproven theory that something that happened to me hormonally when I had Matthew has happened to me post-menopause because nothing in my life has changed since then. Nothing in my circumstances. I've been through COVID. I've been through the loss of my dad, who I miss more than anyone in the entire world. I miss my mum, of course I do, but my, because my mum lived with cancer for 20 years, the fact of her dying was, was only ever around the corner to us for 20 years. With dad, I wasn't ready. And I... I have had moments when I've thought, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and I feel it rising. And then for no reason, it, it, it goes away again. What do you call it when things retreat? It retreats. I can feel the illness retreating. And if I could bottle this, I'd be a trillionaire. So 
I just felt compelled to tell the story because every time I tell it on television, obviously you've only got three or four minutes to talk about things. This podcast gives me the platform to talk in my words without interruption, bliss for me, without interruption and sort of get it all out. So it's really therapeutic for me also. And Nowadays, even though we know that the mental health service is in a fucking dire situation, it always has been the poor relation, always, always, always. And then since the fucking pandemic restrictions, we, we haven't got a cat in hell's chance. It's dire trying to access mental health care. And But at least now, if you find yourself in a position that you feel that there is no help, either for postnatal depression, for depression, for anxiety, for anything like that, you can at least Google you know, depression centers in Wilmslow, depression care in Birmingham, and there will be something there to help you bridge the gap. Of course, now, with my six-week, seven-week-ago diagnosis of ADHD, I apparently had a 75% more chance of getting postnatal depression. Now, again, I can't, I don't know but now I know more about ADHD. Had I known about that condition, had anyone ever taken, you know, I mean, to be honest, I don't know that there would have been any symptoms for me before that. Distraction, but I was just lazy as regards not wanting to do my work. Um, but of course, a lot of it makes sense to me now. Um that there was maybe just something in my neurodivergency that made me more susceptible to it. But maybe, there's lots of whys, but to me, the, the origins were hormonal because psychologically, I didn't have burdens. People always thought that postnatal depression happened to people living in a tenement block in the middle of Newcastle with no money and, and you know, alcohol issues and, and domestic violence and, and, and awful situations. Yes, of course, people like that get it. But so do people living in the most beautiful homes in the, in, in the country with millions in the bank. Depression does not care who it hits. Now, obviously... There will be inquests and stuff about what this woman has done in America. And I can only imagine the pain that her husband and the family are going through trying to make sense of that. But what does make sense is that she was suffering from puerperal psychosis and she had no idea what was going on. And um, so if that's the case, I have to have sympathy for her also, it's a hard one, isn't it? Um, anyway, I there's lots I could talk about with, with this, but there is so much more help out there. There is so much more understanding out there. And circumstances like this, with this woman in America, it's horrendous. It's just, it's an awful situation. But what I've noticed is, there's been a few articles about why don't we talk more about postnatal psychosis, about, well, they're calling it postpartum psychosis. It's so American. But postnatal depression, puerperal psychosis. Why don't we talk more about it? And you know what? It was the same with dyslexia. We never talked about dyslexia. How many kids grew up having to wear the dunce's hat in the corner, being told they were thick, being, their parents being told that there was no hope, being ridiculed all their lives? Then how many years did we not talk about menopause? People were embarrassed. Now it's just the beginning of our lives, in my opinion, that time. But now we talk about it. We understand about it. And the same thing currently with ADHD. Oh, everybody's got ADHD now. No, but a fucking of a lot of people have got it. But it's because we always just were told it was naughty schoolboys jumping on a desk. And it makes so much sense of our behaviors. So if somebody says to you they've been diagnosed with ADHD... Please don't say to them, oh, you've always got to have a label for something. They've been diagnosed for a reason. It doesn't change who we are. I've lived with it for 64 years and I've decided I'm not going to take the medication for it because it didn't agree with me. I'm going to get fitter and I'm going to eat better and I'm going to do it that way and have my therapy. So a pretty serious juicy crack. And I'm going to try and think of something funny to do the next one. <laughs> So it's been it's it it's been an it's been an episode but I just felt compelled to um talk a bit more about the horrors of postnatal depression and 
to sort of garner more understanding for people and also to look out for things. You know, if somebody looks like they're not coping and they're very quiet, just keep keep your eye on them. Also, when you go around to see somebody's new baby, don't put all the attention on the baby. Put the attention on the mum as well, okay? Don't just take presents for the baby. Take a casserole for the family so mum doesn't have to cook and just check how she's feeling and check how dad's feeling. There ain't no hormonal origin with dad's depression, but believe you me, I've spent a lot of time in this world and there are men that suffer psychological depression after childbirth. I'm not going down that road right now. And I know I get people going "Eh," all the time, but I don't care. You know me by now. I don't give a shit. If I'm passionate about something, I'll talk about it. So listen, on you go. Um, And um, lots and lots of love. And thank you yet again for tuning into My Juicy Crack because I'm getting some amazing responses and I'm loving doing it and I'm loving having my own platform. So thank you and I'll speak to you soon. So guys, if there's anything that you've ever heard me talking about that you'd like to hear more of, or indeed anything you can suggest that me, DK and Lincoln can bring to the table, contact me on deniswelshpod at gmail.com. And um, indeed, if you've got any questions, ask away. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.